people have our arms open to you, Exxon. We're ready to welcome you into the clean tech revolution and the transition. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today is Saturday, October 30th. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And I am Robert Parker. And on this special Hawaiian Halloween pirate edition, we are <laughs> the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yar. Yar. <laughs> Happy to have our good friend Rob Parker joining us again, uh, fellow pirate. Uh, shout out to him for sending us these pirate eye patches where I pretty much can't see anything right now. I feel like I'm taking an <laughs> eye test, which is a sign of our age, I suppose. But Rob, good to see you, man. And uh, tell us what you're doing when you're not attending a luau. Uh, I wish I was attending more luau's, but uh, I'm still director at Sith Capital Advisors, working with our fellow pirate, uh, Cassandra John, who uh, is also doing other uh, great things right now, uh, working with a number of different early stage companies in the clean tech sector, uh, as well as advising uh, NYSERDA's innovation uh, tech to market team and the Canadian consulate's clean tech uh, or climate tech desk, excuse me. Uh, now that we've shifted names and uh, taken a little hiatus from teaching with Lucas at NYU this fall, just because um, just work is too busy. There's a lot going on in the sector, um, including as we're, I won't be there. And unfortunately I'm not in this Hawaiian background, uh, but a lot of people are on their way to Edinburgh or to Glasgow for, for COP26. So uh, I know Eric wanted to talk about that just a, brief uh, moment, but maybe we'll have some more recaps uh, in the weeks ahead. Yeah, you know, uh, thanks, Rob. It's great to see you. Uh, for you pathetic souls actually watching us on YouTube, uh, we are taking the eye patches off so we can actually engage with each other visually without without starting tears flowing. Um, <laughs> no, it's amazing right now. There are really two significant things that we probably will have postmortems on, and the first of which, as Rob mentioned, is COP26. Incredibly important. Um, I hope everyone starts listening to the hopefully recovering Queen Elizabeth, where this better not be talk, but this better be real action. Uh, and then secondly, you know, hopefully by the next episode, we're going to have an idea of what's passed in the Build Back Better uh, legislation that seems to be changing by the hour. So, Rob, you're absolutely right. You know, we're all three of us are on the ground seeing a lot happening in the clean tech space, but we better start seeing some positive results out of the big picture stuff. Uh, I mean, I think uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here with you guys. It's been a while. Um, I'm glad you guys are back up and running. And um, and also, I haven't said it publicly, but congrats to Eric on his, uh, his new role uh, in the sector. So kudos to that. And I did mention a couple of names, but I think I'll give the disclaimer right away. These are my own opinions and not any of my clients because... I definitely don't speak for NYSERDA or the Canadian government uh, consulate general in, in New York. <laughs> uh, that's interesting because I was going to ask you who's going to win the Stanley Cup right now. And if you didn't name a Canadian <laughs> team or if you picked a Canadian team, you could have real trouble. No, in I can't. There are, <laughs> there are competing factions even in my the outpost in New York. So I wouldn't want to offend any of my uh, colleagues who are fans of, you know, whether it's Toronto uh, or, or Vancouver or elsewhere, so or the Nordic uh, or Quebec. So no, <laughs> not going near that one. All right. Well, uh, you're a wise man. So before we get started, though, I do have to do a quick shout out. Um, I'm going to put a second hat on for those 
visually. This is the Berkshire Innovation Center, and shout out to their director, Ben, uh, who is uh, a great little uh, hat inch this year. I've had a great build to my hat collection. Uh, but I wanted to give a shout out because our my company uh, that I'm proud to be CEO of, SolarBlock, we keep a satellite office in the BIC in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And I'm really proud of what the BIC has been doing up there because they're taking a town like Pittsfield, which was hard hit by the deindustrialization of this country. GE Plastics used to own that city. They pulled out largely, uh, very small presence left. And you got something like the BIC that's coordinating great innovation in that area. And so really, really good shout out to them. So. Uh, I felt very compelled since we're doing a hat themed uh, pirates. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of good innovation right. going on in the old Rust Belt, right? So, so it's always good to see that. Pretty much anywhere even, you got Rust Belt, you've got new innovation trying to come in, right? Yep, even in Wisconsin, in Lucas's home state. Yeah, that's right. So, good things going on there. Lucas, I think you need to run under the Green Party ticket for governor of Wisconsin next time. Yeah, well, I didn't have it as an article, but I did share with you guys that uh, my father's old paper factory in Green Bay finally shut down their coal generation. Yay! They got rid of their coal pile, and it actually turned out to be a double benefit to them because now they're going to take that land and expand uh, and have more facilities uh, in that area. They went natural gas a couple of years ago, so that's finally done. Uh, and they took down their smokestacks, which were which were like a defining element of the skyline of green bay which was kind of sad um and now it's gone so the next time i go home i won't i won't even recognize my own home you know so it'll be weird yeah you know uh, a lot of those rust belt cities have those towering smokestacks they remind me of the uh what's the pink floyd album animals you know that has that big power plant in london which is now a multi-million dollar condo uh <laughs> turned into like an office condo property so all right. Well, listen, uh, uh, since we're taping midday, uh, all of us have elected not to have a beer of the week. We're pretty much on coffee, tea, and water. So uh, <laughs> we'll be skipping that part. Uh, Rob did our disclaimer, but we'll do it for the whole thing. The views expressed by the pirates are those of the pirates and not any organizations we're affiliated with. And also, uh, we will be mentioning public companies on occasion. And please, we ask you that we're not making any recommendations about the securities of those companies. So please uh, consult with a Certified licensed financial representative, if you're thinking of investing, that is not us. So, <laughs> look at us. Uh, we have the guest of honor do his articles first. Oh, you want to do it that way? Sure. Well, I guess on the, the quick one, um, Lucas, maybe we'll do backwards and since it plays off of kind of highlighting what might come up over the next couple of weeks. Is uh, I've got an article from the New York Times that came out um, recently that um, the Financial Stability Oversight Council is, is uh, looking at regulatory actions on disclosures for climate exposure, fossil fuels, and things like that for the regulated, uh, the financial institutions that they regulate. Uh, it's going to become more and more of an issue as things move forward, um, and it could tee up some maybe some things that come out of COP26 or part of the frameworks that they look to, uh, but I think you'll start to see lots of regular, regulators look at that on a broad level um, just to be uh, proper fiduciaries uh, to their investors. Um, I'll throw it to you guys for any quick comments, but that was just a, it's in the New York Times it's from the past uh, week or so. It should be pretty easy to find. Yeah, let me let me jump out on this because as I was leaving my former uh, employer, Sumitomo Mitsui Bank, they were really doing a fantastic job along with many other of the multinational banks 
of not just looking at ESG and climate change from a you know business opportunity standpoint, but also in a risk management standpoint. And I got to see firsthand, you know, really smart people working on true risk management and looking at their portfolios. And, and I think many of the shareholders of, of the large banks in, in the United States, they really should uh, they really should be proud of, of these companies. I think, and I think the Fed is doing a great job of kind of staying on top of everyone uh, through their various councils. So yeah, it's a great article. It's great to see that. Yeah, go ahead, Rob. So um, again, I think it's just something to keep an eye on. And I think that'll come from more of the both Build Back Better and, and COP26. Uh, and the next article up that was going to talk about was actually from Vice News on... Um, 500,000 public electric vehicle chargers is the wrong goal. Uh, um, working into perhaps what that Build Back Better might be, bill might contain. A lot of it talks about the EV charging infrastructure and what's there. And uh, I think it, it's really important to recognize that um, while range anxiety is the big issue related to EV adoption, right? Everybody worries about, oh, I can't take a real road trip because is there a charger in XYZ spot or place? And um, this, this addresses kind of two things that are important, um, you know, which is it's in that it's not necessarily um, it, it's thinking about what's a different transportation paradigm like a car or like an internal combustion vehicle. And um, think about it this way. When you're out, do you charge your cell phone uh, and worry about there not being any outlets or places that you can charge it because you're going to charge it three times a day as you walk around or, or go on, on a long trip? Or do you charge it once at night when you're home on the side of your bed? 92% of EVs in the article um, can do charging at home. So it's a much different, and, and that's going to fit for their roughly 250 miles that they're going to do for the day. So obviously there's independent uh, areas that it's going to be different and they, they address some of that. But, you know, that's the first thing they keep in mind as far as range anxiety. It's really kind of capturing that. Uh, I'm going to drive somewhere and I'm not going to have enough fuel or I'm, I've run out of gas on a road trip. So that does speak to a, a larger, larger need, kind of like, you know, if we're talking, this is a uh, build back better with the new deal than the electrification of the original new deal going into rural areas. Right. So you will need charging or some infrastructure in the long swaths of the U S interstate highway, highway system. But for the vast majority of drivers, it's really a non-issue. And, uh, it does address that some of the concerns of uh, looking to EV charging for people who own cars and have garages and things like that. You know, you, there are some social justice, climate equity issues around it. But if you want to really make bang for the buck penetration, you'd almost be better looking at this. My interpretation, I understand the article of figuring out ways to subsidize to get as much level two chargers, which is also a much different grid infrastructure problem. Uh, in homes, and that addresses 50% of that e those EV targets right off the bat. Then you still have issues of public charging and speed chargers and, and things like that, but it could be a much more targeted way to fund this that could get that much faster um, into where you want to go for EV adoption and penetration. So, you know, I think that that's one of the big things that I thought was just interesting about the article of the big number that you see in a lot of the headlines is half a million or a, a, a million. In charging infrastructures for EVs, 
and it doesn't really accept the fact that things are different now. And even right now, if you park your car at home in the garage once, you feel it up maybe once a week if you're driving, uh, if you're not driving a lot, or maybe twice a week on the way home. It's still, it's, it's intuiting a level of range anxiety that doesn't really match the, the use case, or it's using the, the 5 to 10% of the problem to say, now we have to blanket subsidize half a million chargers all across the country when it might make sense of saying, let's subsidize these households to make sure they have level two chargers, which are a lot cheaper, which are a lot less strain on the grid, and put those in every home along with their battery that can have other grid issues, which is Lucas's uh, grid support, which is Lucas's expertise. Um, but that it's really just a, it's the, it's the raw number to, to think at the problem without looking at to how to really properly target the problem. So I've talked a little, enough, I think, about that on the, the general gist. I thought it was really, um, I like the article because it's saying, yes, we need to do this, but let's be smart about how we're going to do it and, and target those funds appropriately if we do want to make the biggest impact as fast as possible. Yeah, I really like this article. I mean, it's making some of the arguments I've been making. Um, you know, I really like the the thought about how, you know, you have to put chargers in different places than maybe you'd put gasoline stations. And we really have to think about where they go as far as public use. I mean, it has to be in places where, you know, that are destinations like uh, hotels or large malls or things like this, where you also, you know, your car sits there for many hours. And so some traditional places where we have gas stations might not, might not make sense, like close to your home, which is the point they make, right? You can charge mm-hmm. at home. You don't need a EV charger close to your home. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't help you at all. So, yeah, I really think, I mean, the conclusion is, for me, we need to be smarter about how we incentivize EV chargers and where we incentivize them, right? So this is great. Yeah, I totally agree with both your points. Uh, good article. You know, for me, it's very interesting because you have some OEMs out there like um, Superu, which is uh, Fuji Industries, and Hyundai Kia that are offering full-on BEVs but they still offer plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, which I still think is a great interim solution while this infrastructure gets built out. It, it solves range anxiety because you have a gasoline backup engine and you have a little bit more certainty for those that are slightly skeptical. I think those are great solutions. Uh, that's a little bit off this topic. Um, I do think we have to be smarter, and I agree, we're not putting these exactly where gas stations are. We should be putting these where consumers you know, grocery stores should have them, you know, uh, because there's going to be people who shop for 25 minutes. And on a DC fast charger, you can get 75% of your juice in that time period. Uh, it should be an incentive of some sort. So I think a lot of uh, progressive utilities are also looking at being smarter about where you're locating these. But um, I've always been disappointed that the VW money wasn't used for a national coordinated rollout. It was more left uh, to states. Uh, who seem to not have a game plan in place. So uh, this is a good article. It just, we have to kind of keep moving on being smarter about how we're using our charging infrastructure. Well, Eric, I do want to give one pushback before we move into the next one on the, like the grocery store example, most grocery shopping, you're going to do what, 15 or 20 minutes from your home. Do you need the, and I, the one thing that I like that it doesn't come up enough because we all talk and I've worked with energy storage companies, right? So they're trying to, how fast can we charge? And, and that's the Holy grail, right? So that people don't want to be sitting at a gas station for an hour to get 40% charge. So that's why we need fast charging. That the the use case there on the energy intensity of a fast charger um, 
Yeah, I, th I think you had it highlighted there, Lucas, like the third uh, article that it's so much more intensive versus a level two charger. And if it's your local grocery store, that doesn't necessarily make sense compared to, I agree with you, you're at the mall, people are sitting there for four hours in a day, and you can even then have a level two infrastructure. Fast charging, you know, really, because of the grid strain that it does, um, I think this is maybe also a way to, to get more utility buy-in to work with them on how you target those and the strain that they can put in. That's my, I don't know. But yeah. But I think there's, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of the United States where people do travel 30 minutes more to get to a grocery station, like a large grocery store. And if you have a grocery store that chain that has rooftop solar with a battery associated with it, then the strain on having a level two is not necessarily that great. I don't say the whole parking lot should be nothing but chargers, but there should be something there because I think for certain people, it makes sense. No, that's a good point. That's also my uh, my Northeast bias uh, versus, you know, m as my brother used to tell me when he lived in Texas, you can drive eight hours and still be in Texas. So, you know. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But no, it's 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 a fair point. But the the fact that we're having this conversation, thinking about smartly deploying charging, is something that I hope is being replicated at the government level across the board. Definitely. Uh, All right. So yeah, I encourage everybody to check it out. Um, and then uh, my Hawaiian shirt and background for my highlight article uh, of the day. Um, a little perspective on my background, uh, way back in the day, I, in 2008, I helped advise uh, the Hawaiian State Senate on uh, some upgrades to improve the Hawaiian Clean Energy Initiative. They've obviously taken that much farther in the years since, since I was out there. Um, but right now, I think, and broadly speaking, I was talking about this with Eric and Lucas as we got started, almost every island economy um, out there is dependent on imported fuel of some sort, whether it's uh, oil, usually it's usually oil. Hawaii, this one talks about they put in a coal plant because it was the cleanest one at the time, and it was a way to wean off of the more volatile uh, oil markets that they were dependent on. And right now, I think it was 16% of Oahu's grid. Um, the other thing to keep in mind for Hawaii in general, or Hawaii specifically, um, it's the islands are each their own grid and it's really deep ocean between, between, uh, between each Island. Uh, so that's not necessarily an issue in maybe some Caribbean islands where you could have a more interconnected, um, say offshore wind uh, network, but, um, but that I think Hawaii has become a great test case. And that's what this article highlights for where, uh, the renewable transition has happened and needs to go. And Island communities are on the front line of that, of, being potential victims of climate change. Uh, and also since so many of them are dependent on tourism and their natural beauty, they have even more incentive to try and figure out the cleanest uh, options possible. But one of the challenges, I think, even here in the US, you know, we'll talk, you had um, uh, Chatterjee from FERC on earlier. I know that's one of Lucas's thing, but regulatory capture is a concern even in the US, and it's an even bigger concern in some other island economies. Um, and that was even the case, you know, in the issue when working with uh, in a small place, there's not a lot of people that are expertise. What I thought was really interesting about this article was a comparison of the PUC in Hawaii with uh, the Public Utilities Commission compared to how California handled their energy crisis after 2020. And Hawaii has set these really aggressive, uh, complete uh, decarbonization will go, the 2015 law mandates exactly 100% renewables by 2045. Um, some of the low hanging fruit has been addressed 
it touched on some of the other challenges of, well, I'll get to that in a second, but really that when California had the, these issues go off, they just kind of said, we're going to tell everyone to build like large plants faster and get them online for this, for this past summer. And once again, they weren't there. And whereas here, once the Public Utilities Commission in Hawaii realized that due to a variety of things that are common with big projects, like permitting, soft costs, sites, all that, um, and it goes, the articles in a lot of detail, those things um, were addressed head on by the PUC in saying, what are all the different options that can help us still meet that goal when this coal plant comes offline? And I think that was really interesting to me as a, um, how that regulatory body has transformed to what I knew 15 years ago and also, or 13 years ago, and also how even California, which is so progressive and has so much uh, about, about clean, clean and renewable energy, still look to the standard, let's just put in more power plants approach. And I thought what was really interesting here was um, the last thing to bring up is kind of one of the legacies of the utilities initial resistance to solar, they fought no metering, they pushed it back. So then almost every solar installer now installs with, with battery storage. That's given them an opportunity to now basically say, we're going to have an actual virtual battery system of up to, I think it was 50, 50 megawatts on call that's dispatchable, that's, that's, that's there because of this legacy of the, we, we won't do net metering um, and, and issues on, on cost. And so that now it's a potential solution to address some of these bigger things of really putting in line that, that virtual program. And the last part to that, and I touched on it a little bit, was that there's often brought up in the, in the industry the, the benefits of distributed energy and microgrids and how those play out. And even the state of Hawaii, each island needs to be its own microgrid in some way, shape, or form. But then how do those communities do that? And getting these big plants up online for both battery and other renewable generation, the state needs, obviously, to hit its goals. New York needs its offshore wind farms just as much as it needs microgrids that are built on other different um, you know, renewable sources, waste energy, other, other interesting things. But the permitting time, the, the time it takes to get some of these plants online, it's a long time, it's a long process, there's a lot of hurdles. I can get a, whereas in two days, they can have a solar and, and, and battery storage uh, thing up in an entire community uh, of residential homes and hook that up to this virtual power plant. So I think the speed of addressing some of those goals as somebody who usually looks at the broader commercial scale for, for hitting some of these big targets, I thought it was really interesting to say residential and microgrids can be that actual tool to hitting some of these big numbers without um, faster than we all think and, and really aggregating them appropriately. So I'll, I'm done with my spiel about the article. I turn it over to you guys. Yeah, I mean, Hawaii is, is a perfect place to look at. It's been kind of a... A, uh, you know, laboratory uh, sample of how we decarbonize. I know uh, Kauai has been a big area, which I, I talked with Kauai a couple of years ago. Um, they're a smaller grid. And so, you know, it was thinking it would be much easier to, to switch over there. And so there's a lot of new findings and new learnings going on there that we should definitely keep a close eye on them and, and see how their decarbonization goes because they're I think they're going to be the first uh, to get there. So it's very interesting to watch them and see what happens. 
Yeah, great article again. Um, you know, taking it a little bit off the side, uh, one thing about uh, when I was in Hawaii several years ago, for the first and only time, it was just incredible. I noticed that there was a lot of energy efficiency initiatives uh, at the island, which is great because I've been to many islands in the Caribbean, uh, including, you know, Puerto Rico, where you don't see the energy efficiency initiatives. Uh, you know, you walk into a hotel room, you can leave your lights on all day because you don't have the, the room key switch on uh, that like you see in Europe and in other islands. These are things that are really important. So first off, I think Hawaii has been very smart in that aspect. Uh, I think it's always been disheartening to see when you go to Hawaii and you see a big coal or fuel oil plant uh, right outside the airport as you're heading to your resort that tells you that, you know, even paradise has its challenges. Um, this is great. You know, uh, rooftop solar, I think, makes a lot of sense because Hawaii is not an area where you have a ton of land that is available for large scale farms, you know, solar farms. And land usage is something that, you know, in the island economy is also very important. So uh, distributed it has its pros and cons, but I do think in an island setting, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so I'm happy to see these types of initiatives. And, uh, you know, Hawaii should be, you know, 2045 seems like a long time away for me. They should really be a best practice state and probably be sooner than that if they can really focus. I think the technology is going to get them there. So great article, really comprehensive. I was going to say, by the way, uh, for millennials watching, uh, yeah, I tried to get in, speaking of Hawaii, I tried to get into the new Magnum PI. Can't get there. The old one is tops. What? Oh. <laughs> Go on Amazon, watch the old one. Don't even bother. I've been to the uh, the Masters Estate, uh, the original one. Sadly, <laughs> it is torn down. Sadly, you know, it is actually torn down now. And um, they're building, they, they've divided it up. And I think the rumor is one of the Obama's houses uh, is going to be on that former estate. I was bummed they tore it down. Okay. Uh, this is from a small newspaper called the Post Register. But uh, I found this through a press release from the... Um, uh, Idaho National Laboratory, and so I wanted to get some news out of it, but uh, go back up. Uh, title of the headline is INL partners with Arizona Company to Produce Clean Hydrogen by Jacob Thorrington on October 13th. Uh, what really attracted me to this is Na uh, Idaho National Laboratory is partnering with the country's largest commercial nuclear energy facility, and what they're doing is they're going to take some of the output from that nuclear plant to do an electrolysis green hydrogen um, uh, test, if you will, based on, I think this is going to be based in, um, not sure where this plant is actually, I think it's in Arizona. Arizona. Yeah. Uh, what is really fascinating about this, we have talked about green hydrogen and all the hurdles we really need to get through in terms of technology to really make sure that this is cost and capital effective, because you need to produce green hydrogen by building and manufacturing clean energy sources for the electrolysis process. But here we have a large scale nuclear facility already existing. So for me, this makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to do this test to see if we can bring down the cost of, um, of producing green hydrogen. So uh, this is the first one in a nation that is uh, intrigued by doing this, but the article references some other utilities that also control nuclear power stations and that they themselves may start looking about how they can use those existing assets, which some of them have another 20, 30 years of useful life to make green hydrogen and to use that to power other uh, power facilities. So the multiplier effect could be interesting. The cost is going to be tremendous. And um, I'm really happy to see this type of uh, testing take place. Yeah, so this is a perfect example right here. I don't know if you see all this. Um, this is not smoke rising out of this uh, nuclear power plant. That's steam, actually. Uh, nuclear power plants produce so much energy. They, have, they usually have too much of it. So they actually evaporate uh, water 
to uh, kind of let go of some of that energy. So that that steam, what you're seeing, it's not smoke. They're not burning any fuel. Um, that steam could easily be, you know, that energy in that steam could be used for other things. So, yeah, I would like to see more of this. This is great. You know, there's there's plenty of energy available at at a nuclear power plant. Um, you know, and and if demands from the grid aren't even then you have an opportunity here uh, for many different technologies to absorb this excess energy. Yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously hydrogen as a sector is getting a lot of uh, attention uh, recently along with, with uh, carbon technologies and uh, capitalizing on built infrastructure with some of these technologies, I think is, you know, it's a no brainer, especially because of the applications for hydrogen and industrial and other areas that are harder to decarbonize than, than normal transit. Yeah, so I thought that was a good one. Um, you know, really, we're, we're following green, uh, green hydrogen. We we'll probably need to really get an expert on green hydrogen on, on this uh, podcast. But for now, uh, really happy to see that. So uh, next one is from, I think, October 25th, CNBC.com. Uh, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, colon, the next $1,000 billion startups will be in climate tech. And uh, this is just one of those feel-good stories when you go through it. Obviously, BlackRock has been one of the leaders in creating ESG investing, uh, although they uh, even came out and said they're not divesting some of their uh, you know, legacy fossil fuel investments. But Larry Fink is just coming out. I thought this was a very optimistic story, saying the next 1,000 unicorns could be worth at least $1 billion in technology. And that, again, goes to what we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, when you have all these mandates coming out of hopefully COP26 through the UN, that should translate into national policy in just about every major country in the world. When you have the Build Back Better legislation that should also be deployed either directly to companies through the DOE or to states for them to deploy, there's going to be a lot of money for clean check incubation. And I thought this was a great article to just remind people that if you're smart, if you have a great idea, there are ways in which you can incubate that technology and bring it to market. It's not the easiest thing to do by any means, but the capital is going to be at a point where it's more available than it ever has been for clean and climate tech. So uh, that was a great story and really appropriate to have uh, these two gentlemen here that helped me get on my road. So, well, Eric, you know, I think, you know, back from your prior life in, in finance, uh, I mean, the, point of the market is really forward-looking, right? So what's going to be forward-looking if not the, the technologies and companies that are addressing, you know, climate change and ways to, to get a renewable, sustainable economy? So, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't disagree with any of that forecasting and knowing not just BlackRock, but a number of other institutions, that's where so much of their uh, active dollars are going. Um, but you know, at the same time, a little, I mean, black marker is like, yeah, we're not going to change any of our current massive fossil fuel investments earlier, which I think they're going to get more and more pressure on some of that on how those assets work or how they're being fiduciaries with that first New York Times article I mentioned. Lucas? Yeah, I, I really like this. Uh, it is kind of a call to anyone who is interested in good investments, if you have money to invest. Right. He's saying there's going to be eight Teslas, maybe 10 Teslas out there. So if you have the, you know, capability, please get into uh, clean tech investment. And the other thing is, is I'm not I'm not really critical of him for saying things like this would not divest from hydrocarbon. I mean, a ton of people use hydrocarbons today 
to heat their homes and things of this nature. So you can't just drop um, hydrocarbon companies like a rock. Uh, we have to transition away. So this is critical to have support for existing infrastructure until we can transition. Fair point. Right. Yes. Yeah, don't it's criticize. Okay. If he publicly says that we're not divesting from hydrocarbons, that's fine. But I hope then he uh, also has behind the scene conversations with the executives talking about how those companies can be investing in clean technologies like green hydrogen, because we need, we've said it a hundred times on this podcast, we need big oils balance sheet to make some investment. And we need their, we need their engineering skills and their sense of execution to really make this work. So, um, so I agree. I agree with all the above, but this was really good segue into my very fast third article, um, which is certainly something uh, it's very important to me personally. Hyundai Kia, and this is from Inside EVs, uh, I think just from this week, maybe on Thursday. Hyundai and Kia announced solid state. Man, you're killing. There you go. Hyundai Kia announced solid state battery with factorial energy. Uh, This is really important to me for two reasons. And really, it's perfectly appropriate to have Rob and Lucas on because factorial energy started out as a company called Leonano. And they started out with a PhD uh, gentleman named Alex Yu and his wife, Siu Hung, who both got their uh, degrees from Cornell and started developing, you know, nanomaterials for lithium ion batteries out of Cornell. The most important part is they went through a very good system within the Northeast, through Massachusetts, through New York, through an organization called the Clean Tech Open, through another one called PowerBridge, to help them get to where they're to the point where they were able to find venture capital and development capital to scale to the point where they're now working with global OEMs on developing a solid state battery. And so uh, full disclosure, I am a personal stakeholder in uh, Factorial. Uh, I have their coffee mug from their predecessor name, which I hope <laughs> you heard me. not using it right now, but, but I wanted Rob to talk a little bit about why, you know, given his involvement uh, directly with Clean Tech Open, why those types of organizations important and what it means for companies to get to this point where they're really changing the paradigm on battery technology. Well, Eric, you know, I think, you know, one, this is the great, great to see and uh, a long time coming and what's it about five, six years uh, for them to start to reach this level of success, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, you know, when we talk about uh, for climate tech, clean tech, uh, especially here in the Northeast, because it doesn't necessarily have the solar growth that maybe are some of the other institutions that support it out, out West California, uh, we talk about it as an ecosystem here. And uh, there's a lot of different public private partnerships, a lot of volunteers, people like Lucas, um, like yourself, that, that even if you weren't working in the sector at the time, we're committed to driving better, better outcomes uh, sustainably for, for our energy and environmental systems. And, um, you know, like you said, Clean Tech Open is a great organization. It just celebrated, I think, its 16th year uh, for the Global Forum wrapping up a, a few weeks ago. Um, so it's going strong. They're, they're, they're doing well. Um, but there's a lot of different uh, ways that innovation can happen. I, I would say I mentioned NYSERDA. I support that. The Canadian government has a long history of supporting uh, climate tech innovation um, both at the, the federal and international levels, same, you know, New York uh, supports the Clean Tech Open, or NYSERDA does, and that's a, a, a regional Northeast region and part of a, a, a national and global organization. So, and all that's early stage companies, the, the valleys of death that, that they set, the two valleys of death for proving your technology and then for, for commercializing your, and scaling your technology. 
and uh, climate technology and energy is hard stuff. It's not um, it's not just app development. Not to dismiss or, or put those down, but there are real world consequences when you get things wrong. So uh, that's why these tend to be more regulated markets, and uh, you're working with hard hardware and manufacturing, and those systems require even if you got the best technology out there, getting the connectivity or expertise or advice is really hard to do when you're a, a PhD and, and his wife in a lab. And um, I think it's a credit to uh, administrations of, of both parties, at least here in the Northeast, uh, that have supported those over the la- those organizations like that over the last, um, you know, 15 plus years. But, you know, NYSERDA is, uh, one of the things I kind of didn't realize is NYSERDA is 40 years old. So some of these things, obviously it's evolving and it's commitment to driving innovation and clean technology um, changes as the sector is changing. But, you know, there, there's a lot here in the ecosystem and it takes a lot to get a company like that. You were an advisor to, uh, I'm still, uh, Leo Nano is my default. So apologies to their new marketing. Uh, but, you know, I think look at all the, the steps that had happened for them and, how many other companies and, and to the BlackRock story of those successes, it takes a while. There's some other companies that I have advisor that I know they're doing great. They're getting this traction right now, but there's two or three or four touch points along the way over the last, you know, four, three to seven years where they might not have been around if it weren't for programs uh, that are available from, from New York city, from New York state, from Massachusetts, uh, Mass CEC is another in a, uh, tremendous organization supporting uh, climate tech innovation. So, yeah, Lucas, I mean, you're in the program, Lucas is, is teaching it, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And they've done so much to kind of support the ecosystem, and that's been extremely important. And now we're starting, finally starting to see the results of that. Right? <laughs> so, that's good. No, I'd say just hats off to the team at Factorial um, and uh, to the states of Massachusetts uh, for really supporting them as well. So, um, th- that's no shameless ass kissing for me and my day job, but, uh, congrats to everybody. Lucas, I'm All sorry. Right. I didn't mean to cut you off. I don't know if you're going right to your articles. Yeah, we'll, we'll go right to mine here. Uh, I'll try and be as quick as I can. I wanted to bring up this, uh, Twitter thread. There is a FERC proceeding going on, on, uh, rulemaking for transmission. And so this gentleman, Ari Pesco has a very long Twitter thread. We're not going to review the whole thing here. Uh, there's 170 comments on the proposed rulemaking. Uh, he tries to go through all of them. If you're interested in, in transmission, transmission policy, uh, to find out what's going on, uh, this is the place to go. Well, we'll have the link down below for you. Uh, he does look at some major, um, major people uh, commenting, such as the uh, New Jersey regulator, uh, which I thought was very funny because New Jersey has, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, just given up on, you know, cost allocation and they're going to, they're going to move ahead with their own transmission projects. Um, I, you know, the other thing is this kind of illustrates something for me too. Here's New York's comments. Um, here's California's. This kind of highlights how painful and how slow this process is. And I really worry that FERC's making themselves irrelevant by taking so long to do anything in this area. And I think that trend is going to continue, that states are going to be like, forget this FERC process. It's taking years and years and decades. We got to move ahead. So I really think this is kind of illustrative of that. 
of that problem. So I don't know. You guys want to comment? Yeah, sorry. I'll go first. Uh, I mean, uh, first off, Ari, you have a very nice Twitter photo because we see it about 200 <laughs> times in this chain. Uh, hats off to you, Ari, for keeping it professional. I, this is incredibly comprehensive. Uh, I recommend people to scroll through it uh, at Ari Pesco, P, uh, at A-R-I-P-E-S-K-O-E. Uh, if you really want to get a lowdown of what's happening in FERC with this regulatory, this is a, a great summary of it uh, to go through. I agree with you 100%, Lucas. Like the, They need to get faster because the market is moving way faster than regulatory is keeping up with them. And uh, it needs to be an all-in uh, project by co- sense of cooperation by both. So uh, I'll leave my comments at that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I've touched on it, but I agree, Lucas. I mean, it's we need everybody rowing in the same direction fast. Here, I'm going to use this to segue here to California. Uh, investor-owned utilities is an IOU. Uh, they've spent $6.1 billion in transmission capital additions, right? Approximately 63% received no formal review. That's what I'm talking about. They're just going to do it, and they can't wait for policymakers to catch up. But I wanted to call out that number because my next article, and this is old already, believe it or not, uh, Exxon debates abandoning some of its biggest oil and gas projects. This was some great news. You guys know I'm, just like Eric said, I'm pro on getting the oil and gas companies. This is from October 20th even. And it's all, it's already old news because they had their earnings come out when uh, Friday. And, uh, you know, they talked about their capital investment plan. So there's a lot to talk about here. This is good news. This is really good to see that the executives are kind of starting to get it, which I'm really happy about. They're rethinking their uh, oil and gas investments, but I don't see them picking up yet on their clean tech investments. So uh, on Friday, they committed to, I think, $6 billion worth of stock buybacks, which to me means that they would rather shrink their company than invest that money in the future of energy technology. This blows my mind. They're literally buying back their equity and canceling it, and making the company smaller, instead of taking that money and investing it in new technologies to ensure their company grows into the future. Uh, so... It's happening. It's not happening fast enough. So we still have our arms open to you, Exxon. We're ready to welcome you into the clean tech revolution and the transition. So, um, yeah. What do you guys think? I have two points on that. Lucas, I think any any current shareholder should be have an issue with stock buybacks because you look at the returns on them, and Eric might know this better, they don't perform well. They don't get evaluated well by the market or any return. There's almost any other use of capital would be a better use of capital than buying your own stock back. Um, and second, uh, you know, I hear you on this and they also were all uh, a bunch of their executives were just in front of, uh, you know, Congress um, for, for some other things. But I think, you know, you brought up hydrogen and some of the transitions earlier options. I contrast them with Equinor. Equinor and, you know, Eric, to your point of putting the, the engineering, the big systems, the scale, the challenge of getting these things deployed. Um, Equinor said we need to go out and become more sustainable. So they're what the biggest offshore wind company in, on the planet now. Uh, and um, you know, one of the things that brought up at the end of that um, Canary Media article on Hawaii's uh, ditching its coal plant uh, is offshore wind there. And I didn't bring up, and I brought up the, the difficulty of connecting the grids. Um, 
but they can't do this is a problem the continental shelf on the east coast and that's why offshore wind is going big there right now they can be grand, grounded uh, in the ocean on the continental shelf west coast not 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 a problem you have to do floating solar the only place that does that is the north sea the u.s has no experience there so that's 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 an area where an exxon or any of the oil majors that have offshore exploration should be diving into because that's a, a niche and a gap that they can fill. Yeah, Rob, perfect analogy there. I totally agree. We talked about floating wind technology, I think a couple of weeks ago, one of our episodes, it's getting there, it's getting better. Using big oil to deploy capital and engineering for that is an accelerant. Uh, 100% agree, no more stock buybacks, especially for companies <laughs> that get federal subsidies. Okay, you want to talk about Build Back Better and you want to talk about how to pay for Build Back Better, cut the federal subsidies to, to companies that are doing share buybacks. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. Now I'm not a banker anymore. I can say whatever the hell I want. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. So um, if, I were, if I were Big Oil, my prioritization would be let's take our existing projects and make them as green as possible. Methane capture, right? You know, things like that. That's a low-hanging fruit that should be absolutely an imperative. Secondly, using their capabilities in order to, you know, start talking about green, greening hydrogen, right? Which is something that's up their bailiwick because it's a natural resource. It should be something they know how to do. And then third would be large-scale deployment of the offshore wind, solar, et cetera, in the technology uh, to improve all the output, uh, energy output from those technologies. They can get there. Um, but yeah, I agree. So great article to bring up. Um, it, it's certainly... You know, we want to see better. We want to see these guys actually make the transition. Yep. And so I just have one uh, quick short one here. This is straight from Reuters, uh, October 27th. New York State denies permits for two proposed natural gas-fired plants. Um, so I just wanted to point this out as, you know, on the surface, it's a, it's a great win. Um, finally, kind of the natural gas industry maybe will wake up and realize that, yes, we are trying to transition away from fossil fuels. Um, so this, I think, was kind of a rude awakening for some people um, that just expect their natural gas-fired uh, power plants to just be approved automatically. However, I, I do warn about this, as we warned before, that we're no longer in the early transition. So you can't just make impulsive decisions like, oh, let's just shut down some power plants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, y- you have to have integrated resource planning, and that's what I would say to Hawaii also. You have to know where the energy is going to come from if you don't do these plants. And I don't see that that was done. I don't see that anywhere in here. It's just they didn't give them permits. I I worry that this will cause something to break. And then, you know, fossil fuel industry will will be able to say, here, look, see, green doesn't work. And it's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) We need integrated resource planning. We need to make sure we have the storage and the generation available the clean generation available to replace these plants um, before we shut them down. So you're good, good, maybe possibly bad. I don't know. We'll see. We'll have to watch this and see what happens. Lucas, I think to your point on integrated resource planning, uh, that's one of the reasons I liked the, the Hawaii article was that the PUC was aggressive about saying you're not meeting your targets or you're, you're off track to meet it. And how can we, do that and address those needs because recognizing, hey, that's you know that's 18 months, two years away. Will we get there? And and no isn't an acceptable option. Um, so you know I think that that's true. And um, I saw a, a different article that um, 
about this uh, that, that touched on it that did say, um, based on the analysis at the time or recently done, that's not going to have any great impact on those, uh, these particular plants on their extension due to a variety of other implementations. But there's okay. some other ones coming down the pike that, that then it's more of a question mark. So, yeah, yeah that's the concern. Yep. Ditto, everyone. I think what I would have done is I would have said uh, you have conditional approval on these two power plants subject to certain things. And one of them being to make sure that they have the technology to burn uh, greener fuels in the future, like a green hydrogen. Right. We've talked about content mixing in the past. Um, you know, the New Yorker and me applauded this article at first when I saw it, because I know New York is doing so many prolific things in terms of building a greener uh, platform like offshore wind, et cetera. The Ohioan and me always felt that, you know, putting natural fire, natural gas power plants up is uh, taking coal offline. So you have a state in the Midwest that went from 80% coal usage down to 60% because the Delta has been natural gas, which is cleaner burning. So I don't want to see uh, a comprehensive shutdown. I still think it is a transition fuel. Um, but, you know, there are ways in which even putting them up in New York state could be beneficial for the green ecosystem of the state, as you said, instead of just blindly shutting them down. We're not giving them the permits. Yeah, and that's their defense here, right? That they say it's unfortunate that New York's turning down the opportunity to dramatically reduce additions. You you do get a half, about uh, one half cut of emissions going from coal to natural gas. So that's their argument here. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll We'll have to watch this and see where it goes. I mean, I would also say too, like in the Hawaii article, they talked about how you know, oh, they were just going to replace it with rooftop solar. Well, I mean, it doesn't, it's not quite that simple, right? Because now you need smart grid because the grid's not built for, you know, power to flow the other way. And then you also need storage somewhere, either on site or utility scale. And then those power flows has to be, have to be managed. So that's why I say you need integrated resource planning, right? You have to consider everything to, needed to keep the grid up. So and also, it's easier to do the integrated resource planning in a place like Hawaii because the cost of electricity is so much higher because it's all imported. So, you know, the cost of developing a smart grid on a relative basis is much better than probably in a state, say, somewhere in the Midwest, right? Where you yeah, the grid's costs. smaller and it's not connected to 10 other grids. And uh, yeah, it's a little more easier to manage. You're right. That was your last article, right? I mean, look, overall, this is a really interesting set of articles with you gentlemen, especially because uh, we do have so much going on on a global macro basis, yet we still focused a lot on the opportunities that present itself to people who listen to our podcast to bring <laughs> new technologies in a very entrepreneurial fashion, right? And it's not easy. It's such a hard slog. But if you're going to do it, this is the time to do it right now because stars are aligning in terms of uh, market demand and capital resources available. Uh, so I really like this because we covered articles that really talked about the entrepreneurial side of things, but then we also talked about large-scale regulatory-based focus on growing green energy implementation. Yeah, and I would say just if you're interested, just get involved any way you can. Uh, find, a, find a clean tech startup, uh, volunteer with them or work with them. Come take a uh, training course. It's like Clean Start at NYU. Uh, they're all virtual now, so you don't have to come to New York City to take them. You know, there's lots you can do, so just get involved. Yeah. No, I thought it was quite enjoyable being in a basement room of a library for about six hours uh, on Saturdays <laughs> with no oxygen with like 14 other people. It was great. <laughs> 
Jokes aside, though, that was class, and hey, it was a work in progress. What can I say? That's also the class where you met uh, Factorial Energy. So there you go. No, jokes aside, it was a game changer for me. Uh, it was the best thing I ever did in the outside of marrying my wife. Uh, <laughs> so really, like honestly, uh, I recommend the people who want to make that transition to look at educational resources and you know programs within your home state, within universities that you can get an offline, you know, an online certificate or something on nights and weekends. It's totally worth it. It gives you the focus and the capability. So um, why don't you talk about a little bit about NYU's programs, like where they can go for information? I'll actually let Lucas talk about NYU. I was going to bring up the broader thing. If you mentioned, you know, Clean Tech Open or, or volunteering, I think Lucas mentioned, you know, there's a number of places. There's a, there is an ecosystem, especially here in the Northeast, but throughout the country, um, you know, I mentioned, I advise the Canadian consulate, their climate tech accelerator is, is a national program uh, working with offices in Denver, San Francisco and Boston, as well as New York. Um, there are numerous organizations, accelerators, incubators uh, focused on clean tech so much more so than when I first got into the industry. I mentioned clean tech open, which is a national program that need volunteers that need mentors for these uh, entrepreneurs. Um, maybe you end up working with that company or not uh, and just helping out some entrepreneurs as they, as they move along the, the case of their business. But um, some of them are nonprofits, some are not, like Greentown Labs is up in Boston, Urban Future Lab, which hosts uh, Lucas's uh, Clean Start uh, program or NYU's Clean Start program, which Lucas teaches in, should to be uh, accurate. A number of them offer opportunities, uh, you know, Serta funds uh, their incubators uh, and other programs like Scale for Climate, which is focused on scaling up manu- early stage manufacturing uh, startups in the climate tech sector. So there's a lot of ways if you have expertise that isn't necessarily about knowing energy or knowing finance, uh, that if you want to get into the sector, there are ways to do it. Uh, at least to, if you don't have time or the ability to quit your day job yet, uh, at least to check out some ways to get involved and, and build connectivity into the ecosystem. So you do find the right opportunity down the road, like Eric did. Yeah. And so here I can share the website. If you want, you actually have to go to ufl.myc and click on programs. You'll see the NYU clean start certificate program. So this is a great uh, opportunity here. You can see Rob right there <laughs> and uh, quite a few. Wake of up, Rob. Rob, wake up there, man. I'm what are you doing? <laughs> I'm writing notes. He's taking is, that little, is that a little drool coming out? I think that's Zuckerberg next to you, too. Yeah, uh, you can well, see some former students. Notes, so that was at least two or three years ago. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, in person. Um, so you can see some of our former uh, participants, which are now pillars in the industry and doing great things. So it's a great place to... Um, start a career in clean tech we went a couple of weeks between podcasts because we were waiting to have a podcast episode dedicated to to what came out of build back better we're still waiting uh so in the interim, in the interim having uh rob on as a fellow pirating guest is just always a treat for us because you bring you bring the underground perspective but you get the big picture as well so uh just really happy to have you again and uh thank you for everything you've done for me personally but also for like a lot of people in the New York uh, metro area in the Northeast about starting their careers. That both of you guys actually. My pleasure, and always happy to uh, join the Pirates. Gar. <laughs> next time, next time we'll do a we'll do a live from Scotland episode, so we can uh, we can do a <laughs> sipping 
We can do a sipping of some of the local. Uh... I, I noticed your your quest for sponsors, and if it's uh, you know not Arthur Treacher, maybe uh, we'll get a, a distillery in Scotland as as the sponsor. That's that's I'm doing sure. that's doing climate uh, climate friendly uh, distillery distilling. There's probably some good like hydropowered distillery out there that we probably have to partake in and do a live. We have to do a live remote from. Yeah. Sounds maybe good. maybe get the important stuff in the beginning of the podcast because God knows how we'll be at the end of it. <laughs> well, with that, uh, we did our disclaimers. Uh, Lucas, where do we go to watch pirates? Oh yeah, so you can go to YouTube, uh, YouTube.com, and type in the search engine "pirates of clean tech." And you click on the subscribe button. And if you want to get notifications when the latest video hits, so you can be the first to know, you click on the alarm bell. We're also on your favorite podcast site. You just search for Pirates of Clean Tech and click uh, subscribe or follow. And then you'll be notified when our new uh, podcast hits. We're, we're both podcast and vlog format. So whatever you prefer. <laughs> Thanks, Lucas. Well, as we wrap up, uh, wishing everyone a very happy and safe Halloween. Uh, be careful out there, kiddos. Uh, and with that, I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And I'm Rob Parker. And we are the mischievous pirates of clean tech. <laughs> Arr. Arr. Arr.